0: You're listening to Building Bridges, where we bring together small groups of professionals for lively, thought-provoking conversations. In these podcasts, we explore where business is today and where it might be going. Here is your host, Jamie Miller. Hello, and welcome to part two of our two-episode conversation about the impact of advanced technologies on law firms and their clients. I'm joined by three terrific guests, Bobby Basile, Shada Hoffman, And Jeff Marple. For those of you who missed the last episode, Bobby is a managing director with HBR Consulting with nearly 30 years of experience delivering strategic, operations, and technology services to Fortune 500 legal departments and law firms. Shauna serves as the IBM global co leader for the cognitive legal practice, driving global strategy and execution across clients, legal markets, and internal groups. And Jeff is the director of innovation for corporate legal at Liberty Mutual Insurance. He focuses on turning the legal team's technology ideas into reality and instilling a tech culture in the department. Last time, we discussed how artificial intelligence is impacting the practice of law, innovative new legal tech applications, and factors that are driving the growth of advanced technologies in the legal sector. We also discussed how technology might impact the competitive landscape for legal services. You can listen to part one of this conversation on the Skybridge Associates website or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Now... Back to the conversation. So I understand the value proposition for an in-house team, right? And Jeff, you said, you know, obviously you're you're saving money in in, in large measure. I know that's not the only reason, but that's one of the reasons, clearly, that any in-house team is going to want to use technology. From a law firm's perspective, you know, we talked about about sort of capturing their intellectual capital, some of their intellectual property. I could see value there. But given the typical law firm business model, right, based on billable hours, I would think this actually reduces billable hours right so so presumably they're they're spending money and maybe not recouping it through their typical business model are any of you seeing the use of these technologies changing the way law firms think about their business
1: you know i think that that changed before it was even ai there's been a big push for flat rate for many years now and so we're starting to see more and more of that because AI makes that capability available because it can look at the and, and analytics together between AI and analytics they can look at the prior invoicing and make sure that when they flat rate the different types of projects that the, or different types of cases that within that flat rate, it does cover their fees and they're covering, covering their billable hour. And so I think we started seeing that change many years ago and I don't think it's AI causing it. I think it's just the nature of the way that corporations are wanting to pay nowadays.
0: Bobby, what are you seeing? Cause it sounds like you do a fair bit of work with law firms. How, how, kind of what's their, what's their, Value prop kind of how do they justify the return on the investment that they're they're making?
2: Well, I, I, it's a little bit of twofold. I mean, hiring has been um, relatively flat at the lower ranks since 2018 and starting to trend up. But what that means is that you know they went through a better part of a decade with um, less people at the bottom of the pyramid, so to speak. So we have a smaller, uh, smaller, smaller pools of resources in the overall resource pool to deliver services. So in some ways it enables scale. So we're seeing firms implement from that perspective, but you know we are seeing firms react to rate pressure on some types of practices that are more routine in nature. So I think Shauna's right. There is some of that, but we're also seeing firms that are really looking to create and, 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 and are creating their own proprietary offerings that are technology enabled so that they can price them in a different way or to have recurring revenue or provide more real-time value to clients and to improve the experience of their clients. So we're seeing, we're seeing law firms look to this for a variety of ways to support their, their business and, and serve their clients.
0: So how does this feel? So I understand that from the firm's perspective, the firm leadership perspective, Avi, what you're describing, I'm just curious for many of you, how this feels for individual attorneys, whether they're in-house or or outside, you know, how is the experience of working with technology, working with AI, how does that change their job? How do they, how do they feel, what's sort of the, what anecdotal reactions are you getting from people?
2: Well, I think that the attorneys who are newer to the practice are come in and, and are quite, quite frankly, taken off guard by the, the lack of automation in the industry compared to consumer products. You know, there's a lot of the, there's an app, why isn't there an app for that, for how how legal services are delivered? So I think in some ways there's, there is a lot of receptivity. Of course, that's, you know, that's not across the board, but I think that, that we're entering into the age where it's actually being requested and expected from the practitioners and you know one of the reasons uh, why i didn't mention earlier but one of the reasons why some organizations are are looking to do this is for retention and to attract the greatest talent people want to work for innovative cool you know um firms that are forward-thinking and that are investing in and in, uh, making people's lives
0: better
3: jeff i've see
2: seen this forward-thinking
3: yeah, yes. Jeff, I,
0: Jeff. I see you nodding, nodding in agreement about that.
3: All of what she, all of what Bobby said, and then, then additionally, you um, know, it's kind of like any sort of change management probably happened with libraries. You know, like at first there's fear, then maybe um, I don't want to deal with that. I know exactly how my business runs right now, or how my practice runs right now. I don't want initially and. Uh, insert a new variable in it because now it's going to be hard to predict how that work's going to change. And then w- one of the things that we, we really try to do when we're trying to bring something on is get a, a proof of concept or a prototype in somebody's hands. We find if we tell people about something, they're going to tell us, especially attorneys, going to tell us attorneys at a at an, a hundred-year-old insurance company, are going to tell us a hundred reasons why that there's a risk in doing that, and why we probably shouldn't, and all of these sort of edge case, edge cases, what you know that we can't necessarily hit. However, if we let them touch it, click on it, play around with it, they all of a sudden start requesting new features. So it it quickly shifts. So if you can get people to just sort of use it and understand why we're we're doing it for them, they they understand it's not necessarily a threat, and what it really is is just you know it's it's like hey, you used to have a hammer. Now I'm going to give you, you know, a pneumatic hammer, you know, a nail gun, like, and that's way better. You can build so many more houses with that than you could with a regular hammer. And then no one wants to go back to the old hammer after you give them the nail gun. That's one of the ways we deal with that.
2: Jeff, I'm curious, are you? Um, what does should law firms be thinking about and doing to to differentiate themselves and to provide and be seen as forward thinking to their clients? I mean, I know there is and has been kind of a disconnect between what law firms think is worthy innovation versus what their clients think is worthy innovation. So uh, is there an opportunity to sort of close that gap and co-innovate together, so to speak?
3: Sure, there is. there is. I think, I would caution law firms not to use technology for technology's sake. And uh, almost like if you're developing a product, don't, don't tell me about the underlying technology, tell me about what it does, and then really actualize on that. So if it's something that includes a communication between the client and the firm, make sure it does increase communication. If it helps you budget better, if it helps you predict better, if it lowers costs, if it makes the client happier, those are the things that you should be focusing on. And you should lead with those benefits and not necessarily, hey, look, we're using this shiny new toy. If you're just telling me that you're using the shiny new toy and I I never see it, I don't, you know, I don't care, (laughs) you know, like, like, uh, it's, it's not that big of a deal to me as, as a buyer. I, I, I want to experience it, experience whatever it is that you're doing firsthand. Or at least I want to be assured that your quality is raised because of X, Y, and Z. And then if you're actually doing something interesting with it, definitely bring it to me because we might be able to use it in another part of our practice. I know Microsoft was doing some of that by actually trying to get their different panel firms sort of had, had to take turns bringing new innovations to the front and, and then spreading it amongst their entire firms, which was a really interesting thing that Jason Barnwell was doing up there. Now, we, we've oh. talked to – sorry, to go ahead –
1: Oh, no, I just wanted to mention one thing. I kind of go back. I love what Jeff just said, by the way, because I fully agree with it, And I think that that's amazing insight uh, coming from you and your position. I wanted to go back for a second to what Bobby said. And I, as, when she was talking, I just looked up a couple statistics. You know, I've heard recently that by 2025, over 80% of the workforce globally is going to be of millennials. Now, here's some statistics right away. More than, uh, as of today, more than 33% of American workers Workers are millennials. 20% of lawyers in the United States are millennials, but only 2% of partners in AMLA 200s are millennials. So we're looking at only five years from now having a majority of millennials in the world and their expectations are totally different. You know, I've got a kid who's a millennial and as I start to look at what her requirements are, she's in medical or going into medical school and her requirements are all AI. And this is, you know, she's expecting, she wants to be a surgeon. She's expecting to never actually have to put her hand on a scalpel, but instead using robots to do the surgeries for her. And that's what they're training in medical school right now. So we start to see the same thing on the legal side is really, are we, are we going to end up having some issues in the legal community? Because we aren't training enough of our millennials to be able to have those millennial to millennial conversations when they're the ones who are at the forefront of these companies.
0: And and Sean, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that is something that, you know, In, in as I was thinking about this and, and kind of researching this ha- has come up that, you know, law schools have sort of a model that's worked for 150 years, you know, case based and, you know, fairly analog, quite honestly. And, you know, to what extent are law schools starting to prepare students, you know, the new associates when they graduate for this kind of work?
1: That is a very good question. I know I speak often at law schools. I'm probably at a law school every week. Um, When I'm traveling all over the world, I'm typically at a law school when I go into that country. That's at least one of the meetings that I'll have. And they're wanting to pick our brains to say, okay, what is it that we can teach the students? And can you come in and speak to the students? I think there's not enough innovation or attorneys who are innovative or legal professionals who are innovative going into the law schools and providing our support and providing our insights you know to the to the different professors I've been really happy I've so far you know I've spoken at of course Cornell I've spoken at Duke I've spoken at you know Arizona State University they've brought me in five times over the past year and so there's a lot of universities Um MIT MIT's doing a lot in this area even they don't even though they don't have a law school they have a whole computational law program through Do- does a greenwood Greenwood so there's some really neat things that we're starting to see but it's still I think honestly it's not enough Jeff I know that you just spoke at Harvard, what was your experience
3: recently? Yeah, we spoke at Harvard. So first of all, that was total bucket list item. I can't believe they allowed me to speak there. That was pretty interesting. Uh, but then, <laughs> but then uh, so that was, it was very much an introductory sort of for the students to understand the different aspects of the industry. They had judges, they had corporate law like me, they had they had attorneys, they had law firm attorneys, they had legal technology providers, all sort of giving different perspectives on how tech is changing the world that they're about to enter. And they had, um, I spoke on a panel with a woman who was a recent grad and had just gone into a legal technology startup. So they're thinking about it. And then we had a nice lecture from, oh, and I can't remember his name now, from a professor there that that is essentially doing surveys on on the legal technology area and, and law firms and corporate law as well, trying to understand what people are doing. So it's happening. We do a lot of work with Suffolk University and their law school. We just had our third third annual Boston Legal Design Challenge there that uh, Liberty and Suffolk co-host. We run a day-long sort of, it's not a hackathon because they're not actually developing code, but uh, law students partner with MBA students and try to come up with a, an interesting legal product or service. We give them a, a sort of secret ingredient at the beginning of the day that is sort of a la Iron Chef, and they they try to come up with different pitches. So that's sort of to move the cultural needle there. That We had students from Suffolk and Northeastern there this year. Suffolk has has a concentration in legal technology now within their JD program. Gabe Tenenbaum runs that program. Dean Perlman and Gabe have, have done great things there. We, we really like. The Suffolk students. We've had tremendous success with them. We've had our last three clerks have come from there. One has caught on with our attorney attorney development program, which has been fantastic. So I think it's starting to change. It's it's filtering back in. Obviously, Stanford's done a ton of work in that space. So it's happening at different schools. I think some schools are still very traditional, but it is, it is, it is coming. I I don't exactly know what to tell them to teach, quite frankly, because you can't sort of skimp out on the law part of it, but there is a sort of legal technician piece that needs to be there. And maybe, maybe they need to teach the law in a different way than, than they have. I mean, like maybe via different mediums, but I, I haven't been to law school, so I, I, I feel like I'm starting to be commenting on things that I probably shouldn't be.
2: This summer, HBR had an intern that was part of the Institute of the Future of Law Practice, an iFLIP intern um, from a program where law school students who are currently in law school spend their interns and internship working in business and working um, in uh, various capacities not just as in, in lawyering capacity, but in uh, technology capacities and in consulting capacities. So we, we had a, this is the first year we did that program and that was is quite interesting. So I think that is one way that the law schools that are part of that Institute of Future Law Practice are, are trying to infuse some of those skills. Emory Law is another example. They have a program called the Tiger Program that is run by a, a, a really dynamic person there and it's the same, similar in that they um, have folks who self-select into a program and, or volunteer, I should say, and then gets vetted and or accepted into a program where they are pointed towards and, and offered as resources for law firms and corporate law departments. So I, I think it is happening. It's, it's happening in, in uh, bits and pieces across the industry, but it, it's starting to, to gain momentum.
1: And it might be fascinating to get some of these um, leading professors together. I had the great fortune of spending time with Jeff Ward from Duke uh, when I was in Taiwan last week. And as we spent a couple days together, I was so impressed um, to really understand the reason he was there is because Duke has aligned themselves with one of the universities in Taiwan and they are doing a lot of back and forth. So he has students from Taiwan come in. We have students from the United States going to Taiwan. So we start to get this combination of AI, blockchain, some advanced technology training, but then also the international components because they each understand different things um, from that, you know. And it, it was just a really fascinating back and forth between the two countries and watching that um, and watching his, you know, discussions with the other professors from Taiwan.
0: So it, it sounds like there are some pockets of innovation then in the law schools and some beginning kind of collaboration amongst the law schools. Uh, although I'm kind of inferring from this conversation that a lot of the training and a lot of the the, the uh, kind of the development is happening on the job, right? Uh, whether it's, you know, Jeff, uh, you know, someone who comes into your organization, presumably they have to be brought up to speed, or even someone who joins a law firm. Uh, I, I'm sensing that, you know, much of what they would need to know about technology, they probably need to learn once they're actually working. Uh, well,
1: and one thing I'd love to jump in, one of the things that Jeff Ward said when I was with him last week it was I thought the most brilliant thing, he said the smartest class you could ever take was anything in literature. <laughs> and I asked him <laughs> why. And he's like, because of the critical thinking. And as we start to train artificial intelligence, I will tell you, that I have clients who can train Watson within just literally days because they critically think through all the things that Watson possibly could understand wrong. (laughs) And so it's really fascinating to see the literature and that analysis and learning how to really break down how we speak and how we write and how the AI is going to understand things. So um, I actually am at Harvard myself getting my master's right now. And it's fascinating to see kind of that literary analysis come out and me understanding and really being able to dig in deeper. And it's probably one of the smartest moves I made um, in regards to really becoming that critical thinker. And, you know, I think that's one of the huge skill sets going forward that's going to be the most important.
3: Right. And, and James, just going back to something you said, I, I don't think I'd be too, too terribly hard on the law schools either because, I think most professions you're not learning about the tools of the trade until you actually get in the job like you know if I was just I was just thinking like well if I'm going into finance it's not like I'm got a Bloomberg terminal at you know when I'm in finance 101 I think that's that's kind of everywhere I think that they need to be able to think about how technology is made and how it's used, like what makes good technology, but more in the abstract, the actual sort of day-to-day training I think is something you're just not going to get until you get into a job.
0: Okay, I think think that's a a good point. Um, Now, I'm mindful of time, and I want to kind of close out our conversation by looking a little bit ahead. You know, Bill Gates famously said, we underestimate the change that will occur in the next two years. And sorry, we, we overestimate the change that will occur in the next two years and underestimate the change that will occur in the next 10. So kind of looking ahead, let's not even look ahead 10 years. Let's look ahead five years where's this heading? You know, if if we were to, if we were all to get to get back together again in, in 2024, kind of paint the picture of the tech landscape in in the legal profession.
3: It's like the whole thing, like uh, things happen slow until they don't, which happens a lot with technology. I'll start, I guess. Um, I'm thinking a lot about the exhaust of legal transactions in the form of data and how that might, I'm seeing a trend of that becoming more and more available and what are the next level products and services that are going to land on top of that? So outcomes of litigation. We think about litigation a lot at Liberty Mutual. And there's other types of of legal transactions that occur, obviously. But if that data were to become more available, what does that mean to the industry? What does that do to the pricing of uh, legal services? And then what does that allow? This is probably too far out than five, but what does that allow to start happening from a dispute resolution perspective as that data becomes more and more available? It's interesting to think about. It could go a lot of different ways, and regulation and cultural acceptance could put the brakes on that, which is usually what happens, usually for good reason. But uh, that's something I've been thinking about a lot lately.
0: Hmm. So, Jeff, really, you know, kind of taking, it sounds like you're saying making better use of the data that's already. Being generated, it's not necessarily well, and, that there's new technologies, but rather new applications uh, of
3: using that we already well, have. Well, first, uh, more data being available at scale, so being able to access data that that maybe wasn't accessible before. There are companies out there that are doing things like scraping uh, small courthouse websites to grab outcomes data, right? Almost like Google drove the earth to create Google Maps. It's it's the same kind of exercise. And that kind of capital human investment is sometimes required for a digital revolution, which is really an interesting thing to think about. I think that you're going to see more and more of that data becoming available and the sophistication of the products that can lay on top of it, such as predictive analytics and then, you know, full-scale, full-blown AI is going to lead to some really interesting product development, which is a super way of punting and saying, I'm not really sure, but I think there's some cool stuff there. <laughs> right. Well, that's great. Uh, and, and Shana, what do you see? You know, uh, obviously IBM
0: is, is on the forefront of, of a lot of this. Uh, kind of what are, what are the big thinkers at IBM seeing five, 10 years out on this front?
1: A lot of it is going to rely on what happens financially in the world over the next five years. Honestly, if we see any sort of downturn, I think we're going to see an increase in AI and anything technologically backing it because everyone is going to try to start cutting costs. I mean, I'm seeing you know, where we were able to cut costs of over 200 million dollars with one client in regards to litigation fees and so i think that's going to be one thing that does put a little fire behind ai being more well adopted within the corporations you know i think that if i was to put my thinking cap on um regard you know the next financial downturn definitely i think would be a push for it you know but i think also the regulatory backing you know of the different technologies. You know, as we start to see changes, I think we're going to see pushes for being able to automate so much of that. We're already starting to see the uh, United States government and other governments around the world, they're really taking a um, liking to blockchain because what that can provide is the transparency and kind of that open view for them, but still can lock it lock it down securely for the rest of the world so that it is safe and It can stay, the data can stay private, and it can stay confidential. And so we start to see blockchain as a really big move forward. I think that those would probably be kind of my, if I was put on my thinking cap of where I think the next five years would be. You know, we aren't expecting singularity until 2050, so we've got about 30 years to go, you know, before the robots are thinking on their own.
0: (laughs) <laughs> that's that's something to look forward to, Jeff. I want to come back just for a minute before we go and we've talked a lot about about a lot of positives obviously with regard to to AI and blockchain and other advanced technologies uh, There are some potential negatives you know you, you mentioned uh, issues around regu- regulation and I, I presume there's privacy issues data security issues there's got to be a host of issues that folks are thinking about. How significant are those you know as you kind of play out the the, the advantages and disadvantages
3: well, the thing I, so if you talk to Elon Musk, you're going to get a whole litany of things that are going to cause an issue here, but uh, I guess the one that I worry about the most is, um, is bias. So everyone on this call is biased about something and that's, they're not saying anything bad about anybody and, and the, the whole world has biases. So the data is going to reflect those biases and the data is what's used to train these, these artificial intelligences, right? Whatever, However they're applied. So eradicating bias from the data set is extremely hard. You don't even necessarily know what you're eradicating in some cases. And getting rid of that and training an AI to think purely about things can be challenging. And there's some been some really interesting examples of bias showing up um, in AI and, and it going very wrong, going off the rails quickly. So that's something that I think that is that we need to be mindful of. You, you, nailed, you nailed another one, by the way, which is privacy. The demand for all this data the economic demand, there's a high economic motivation to grab more and more data, and that can come at odds and has already significantly with personal privacy. So there's there's a couple of things to think well, about. And
1: one of the things to mention, too, is at IBM, we have the opportunity to do so many amazing things with Watson. I mean, Watson can read over 800 million pages in just seconds and understand them. So it really is truly mind-blowing, the different things that our researchers at IBM have tried. And what my co-leader and I had uh, made a very mindful position a few years ago within IBM that there were certain legal things that we would not be doing with Watson until there was a transparent system that could actually review bias. So about a year ago, IBM came out with AI open source. That is an open program to uh, check bias of any AI tool, even beyond Watson, out in the world. So you start to see a good tool that kind of having AI being a watchdog over AI to make sure that it brings out that bias and that we as the humans can see the different areas that we may be training our AI in a wrong direction or in a direction that um, we're not, you know, really wanting to go in. So that is definitely one of the biggest issues so we've been able to unlock some of the newer solutions that we're hoping to bring out to the market with that ai open source and then also the traceability and transparency of what decisions the ai is making you know i'm still heartbroken by one of the cases that came out of wisconsin not too long ago you know where we are i'm sure we're all very well versed in it but You know where we where we start to see an ai making decisions and the judge relying on those decisions and when the convict asked you know can you show me the code can you share any information about how this decision was made by the ai the company with the ai came back and said we won't because it's proprietary code proprietary information and so there's trust of a system that doesn't have any sort of watchdog and that does concern me in the marketplace in general so ibm has come out to say okay open code you can see how the ai is making decisions where the different um, kind of legs have gone and where the different paths have gone so that we as humans can understand the ai and can understand when we make decisions how the AI has shared information with us along
0: the way, and I can imagine in the legal world where trust is such an important part of the system. You know, you have to trust that the system is fair, uh, and so I, I think, Shana, what you're describing sure. makes a lot of sense uh, in yeah. really providing that transparency. Well,
3: well, even cool. in, a, in, a, in a sorry, just to just a pile on here, James. Even at a <laughs> uh, at a much smaller level, um, one of the hardest things that. If you're training an AI to do something, especially say like, say at where I work, to do something new, right? That it hasn't done before where you work, you're most likely going to have to agree what is the right way to do that thing? So who decides what's right? Because I can tell you that uh, if you put three different people in the room, perhaps three different attorneys, you may get three different answers as to what is the right way to do something that can lead to some interesting you know traceability issues on how an ai was was trained and who makes the call on what's right and what's wrong so that's that's just another another thing to be wary of
1: Well, I think that's actually probably the basis of what that point is. It's because everyone has their own viewpoints as to what is right, what is wrong. And really what AI in the end should be doing is augmenting us. It's not replacing us, but it's saying, okay, here you're gonna walk into a library. You may be able to read those 10 books, but I'm gonna read the entire library. And when you have a question, be able to give you, here's the top five. And so when we look at one of the products IBM has, it's called Watson Debater. Debater actually, you can talk back and forth with it, so you can ask Debater a question. It's going to respond back with all the logical information. Now, um, I was when I was in Taiwan last week, they asked me when Debater respond, why doesn't it have fluctuations and voices? And Debater is not supposed to actually be human. Debater is just going to feed you information so that you can then make the next decision as the human side of things. So it's very monotone. It's kind of boring but we don't want it to be human because it's not human. You know, it's, there are just a fetus information. So I, I think that that is probably one of the best points probably we made. Unfortunately, it's at the end. So hopefully people listen to the end, <laughs> <laughs> but that was really brilliantly said, Jeff. Oh, thank you, Shauna.
0: Well, it's always good to end on a high note. Before we let you go, any, any closing thoughts again, just, uh, you know, reflections or take, you know, kind of takeaways we haven't covered that you'd like our listeners to bring with them.
3: I think we covered quite a bit. Uh, I think I got out all the things that I was thinking about, James, but thank you. Okay. Good.
0: Shot at you.
1: Yeah. No, I I think in the end, we just want to thank you for having us. I mean, this was an amazing opportunity to kind of share and really talk off the cuff about the things that we're working on day to day. You know, I know I live, eat and breathe this. I know Jeff does too. And I've known Bobby for 20 years, weird enough to say. (laughs) (laughs) So I kind of feel like we grew up together in the e-discovery space and then both jumped in the deep end of AI, you know, about a decade ago. And it's been a fun ride, but we are just literally at the beginning of this intelligence revolution. And we have no clue. It's kind of that my favorite phrase is, we don't know what we don't know. I have a funny feeling it's going to be absolutely amazing in five years what AI is going to be able to do for us
0: absolutely great well thank you so much to all three of you to shauna jeff and bobby for a great conversation we're going to have links and information about each of you in the show notes and to our listeners if you have any feedback on this episode or suggestions for future episodes of the building bridges podcast just send us an email to buildingbridges at skybridge.associates thanks for listening we hope you enjoyed this episode of the building bridges podcast and trust the conversation has informed inspired and entertained you If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a colleague and continue the discussion. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player or visit www.skybridge.associates. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.